Have you ever come to the realization that that which you thought you understood, you actually misunderstood? Let me give you a couple examples, at least from my own life. Uh, for the 11 years uh, after college that I spent in corporate America, I thought that I worked really hard. And, uh, and I think I did work really hard. And then uh, the Lord led Kathy and I to go away to seminary, to, to plant a church, and for me to invest myself uh, in the lives of people on a daily basis. And I quickly discovered that that which I thought I had done and worked really hard in the past did not compare to what was going on now. Uh, back in 1994, I thought that I understood grief when uh, my grandmother and grandfather Leonzo passed away within a few months of one another. But in 2013, when I witnessed my father-in-law Mick uh, grieve over the death of my beloved mother-in-law Donna, Kathy's mom, I quickly discovered I did not understand the depth of grief. Uh, when my kids were growing up, I thought I understood what it was like to be a good parent. But then my kids became adults, and my kids had adult problems. And I quickly understood that I misunderstood what it was to be a, a good parent. And if you give it enough time in this world, every one of us will come to realize that at some point, that which we think we understand, we don't really understand. And it is especially true in our walk as Christians. There are things in the Bible, when we are young in our Christian faith, and even when we're mature in our Christian faith, that we think that we understand. But over time, through the mentoring of others, through prayer, through the, through the intercession of the Holy Spirit, we come to realize that that which we thought we understood in the Bible, actually we didn't understand what was in the Bible. Now I came to this realization on many occasions, but particularly in 2014, I was reading a book called The Prodigal God by a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. Some of you may be familiar with that book. Uh, it was recommended to me by a friend who said, Mike, if you think you understand the parable of the prodigal son, you're going to realize after you read this book that you do not really understand the parable of the prodigal son. And so I bought the book and I came to realize that the parable of the prodigal son isn't really the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually the parable of the prodigal sons and that I was actually one of them. And it revolutionized the, the way that I not only look at this very familiar parable, but more importantly, how I look upon myself and how I look upon Jesus. And, and what Dr. Keller did for me in that book in 2014 I'm hoping that I might be able to do for you today as we look at this particular parable. Now, in order to get started, I, I want to make a quick disclaimer. Uh, much of what I'm about to share came not only from my, my own personal study of God's word in the, par the actually the three parables, the lost coin, the, 
the lost son, and why in the world am I forget? Help me with the other one, please. Coin, son, and what was the third one? Sheep, that's right. How could I forget the sheep? So, but more importantly, uh, I learned a lot from the work that Dr. Keller did. So anything good that comes from this today, I cannot take credit for. It comes from the study of, of Dr. Keller, and more importantly, it comes from uh, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Anything bad that comes from this today falls solely, squarely on my feet. So I just want to make sure that we get that out of the way. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to open up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, you can also watch along on the big screen. Up. Uh, so Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. If you could stand, please, in honor of God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then moving forward to verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who set him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son to, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what are these, what these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he was, has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, for centuries, this parable has been known, as I had earlier said, as the parable of the prodigal or the lost son. And unfortunately, this particular focus misses the intent of the passage. There are actually two brothers. Each represents a different way of being alienated from God and a different way of seeking on how to be actually accepted into his kingdom. Now, in order to understand this parable, we've got to understand first, who in the world is Jesus telling this parable to? And if you look at the first two verse, verses, you're going to see that he's speaking uh, to uh, two different groups of people. First, there are the tax collectors and the sinners. And they are represented by the, the younger brother in Jesus' story. They're the, the unchurched people of the world, the secular, in some case, the immoral people in Jesus' day. And they left home by forsaking the moral traditions of their society and their families so that they could basically do their own thing. And some of us in the past, and perhaps maybe even now, can be numbered with the younger brother. We've strayed far from faith and moral standards are our families. We've sought to do things our own way, to find our own truth, to define our own morality. And in the process, we have hurt ourselves and we have hurt other people. But there's a second group. The second group are the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, this group is represented by the older brother. And they're the church people. They're the, the religious people of Jesus' day. Those who consider themselves not only to be moral, but actually much more moral than all of the rest of the people that are around them. They studied and obeyed God's word. They regularly attended the synagogue. They faithfully prayed. And some of us are members of that group. Our faith is important to us. We're, we are striving to, to be obedient to, to God's word. We're trying to be moral and upright. We believe in tradition. And many times we put the needs and expectations of others uh, be over our own needs. Now, each of these two groups... They approach God differently. The sinners and the tax collectors, we see that they actually flocked to Jesus. They came running to him. They wanted to be near Jesus. And this single fact infuriates the Pharisees and the scribes. So much so in verse 3, they complain, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And eating with people in the first century was what? It was a sign of acceptance. And as a result, the Pharisees and, and the scribes, they concluded that Jesus must not be from God because if he was, he would not surround himself 
with people like this. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the parable focusing on? Is it focusing on the sinners and the tax collectors, or is it focusing on the Pharisees and the scribes? Now, the answer is obvious, yet it gets missed by so many people. Jesus, he's focusing on the the Pharisees and the scribes. He's focusing on the moral people, on on the religious people. This story wasn't targeted to a bunch of wayward sinners. No, the target of the story is religious people who do everything that God requires. See, Jesus isn't isn't pleading with some kind of immoral outsiders. He's actually pleading with moral insiders. He's pleading with the church. And he wants to show them their blindness and their narrowness and their self-righteousness. And he wants to show them that their seemingly religious, yet in reality sinful actions and attitudes are, are destroying them and destroying everybody around them. And we, we look at, when we look at this familiar story, which for many of us is probably just simply sitting on the, the dusty bookshelves of our lives, we will discover how incredibly valuable it is. You see, Jesus' purpose behind this story is to challenge everything that the Pharisees and the scribes, and for that matter, everything that you and I assume about God, sin, and salvation. Dr. Keller says this in his book. He says, Jesus is saying that both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. Both life paths are a dead end. And every thought the human race has had about how to connect with God has been wrong. So let me show you. Let's start out with the younger brother. He approaches his dad with a, with a shocking request. In the words of that famous uh, 1989 Queen song, he basically says, I want it all, and I want it now. That group was, was a great group. Without Freddie Mercury, not quite as great, but that's what he wanted. I want it now. And I want it all. I want it all, and I want it now. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, the way that, that inheritance worked back in the first century was the oldest son receives a double portion of what the balance of the kids get. So, in this particular case, where you have two boys, the oldest gets two thirds of the estate, the youngest gets a third of the estate. And so to ask this while the father is still alive is basically saying, Dad, I want you to be dead. I want your money and your stuff more than I want you. Now, the father's response is as shocking as the the young man's request. Rather than kicking the kid to the curb... The dad says, okay. Now, 
For, for those of you who are in your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s who, who are, are thinking about retirement or in retirement who have been saving and have been accumulating assets and at some point are, are going to, you know, going to pass away and, and give whatever assets you have to, to family members or whatever, what, what you, you know is if your kid came to you now and said, hey, I want my portion of the estate, you can't just write him a check. I, I couldn't write, if John would come to us and say, hey, mom and dad, I, I want my portion of your estate, and I'm willing to do it, Kathy and I have got a lot of work to do. We're, we're going to have to start liquidating assets and to give him the things that, that, that he, he requested. And so that's what this dad has to do. I mean, this culture you're living in, it, basically the wealth is tied up in, in property and agricultural resources. So to give the kid a third of everything the dad had, he's selling land. He's getting rid of camels and mules and donkeys. He, he's, he's, he's disposing of, of, of crops that he has had harvested. This, is a, this comes as a huge cost to the dad. Not only financially, but it's a huge cost socially. Can, can you imagine what it would feel like uh, uh, what your friends would be thinking if one of your kids came to you and had the audacity to make this request and then you honored the request. But rather than getting upset, the dad bears the pain of the son's decision all by himself. He sells his stuff, gives his young son his inheritance. And the younger brother leaves and subsequently spends all of his resources living the life of a playboy. He's buying fancy robes, getting first century bling, riding fast camels. He's hanging with, you know, fast women. He's sleeping during the day. He's partying at night. And before he knows it, he has squandered every shekel. I was going to say dying, but that would not have been first century culturally appropriate. He descends so far, he finds himself working in a pig pen, feeding pigs, desiring to eat the food that is being eaten by the pigs. And for a Jewish young man, it doesn't get any lower than wanting to eat what an unclean animal wants to eat. And he finally comes to his sentence, senses, which typically happens when we hit bottom, and he comes up with a plan. I'll return home to dad. I'll admit my sin. I won't, be, I won't request to be restored as a son. I will request simply to, to be a hired servant because my dad treats the hired servants better than I am getting treated right now. And so he heads home. And his father sees him off in the distance, and he, he does something that's completely uncharacteristic for a first century father. He, he hikes up his robe, and he runs to his son. And before the son can recite his practice lines of contrition, the dad says, bring the best robe and put it on him. And the best robe would signify, would be the father's robe, and, and putting this on is a sign that he has been restored to the family. He's not coming back as a servant. He is coming back 
as a son. The dad says, kill the fattened calf. In first century society, meals didn't typically involve meat that often. This was a, a special treat. And the fact that they would do this meat's used for special occasions, great parties, lots of people. The, the father throws the party. The entire village is going to be invited, eating, drinking, singing, dancing. It's just a beautiful picture of, of repentance and forgiveness and, and restoration and mercy. And so what's the message that Jesus is trying to get across to the people that are listening. It's simple. God's love and forgiveness is able to pardon any sin. There is no sin too great that cannot be covered, that is not covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because sin is no match for God's grace. And also teaches us this, that God's favor and his grace are absolutely free. Not even the most heartfelt apology can earn it. But for as much as God's grace is free, it's very costly to the Father. And this is where the older brother enters the picture. We've just seen how the younger brother has disgraced the dad. Now we're going to see how the older brother does the very same thing. And how does he do it? He refuses to enter the largest party the dad has probably ever thrown. He shows up, sees what's going on, and is completely unwilling to enter the party. And the older brother, he forces the dad to leave the party, to go outside and to plead with the son to come home, to come in. Think about what that would be like. Think of the embarrassment that would come from that. Everybody's celebrating and you have to leave in order to come in, go outside, in order to, to have your son come inside. It's a huge embarrassment. So what's the older son's problem? On the surface, he's not happy with the party. He's not happy with the cost. He's not happy with, with the younger brother. But here's the bigger issue, I believe. The one that's written between the lines. And it's this, when the younger son comes back and gets restored to the family, what is he now entitled to again? A third of the remaining estate. Think about that. There's an economic issue that is going on here. This makes the elder son even more anger. So he insults his dad, and he says this, I've been good. I've done what you wanted. And what good has it done me? My little brother goes, and, and he squanders everything, like the little irresponsible brat that he's been since he grew up. And you, you forgive it all. You throw him a party. 
Where, dad, is the justice in that? And perhaps you felt like the older brother at some point in your life. You've been living a, a, a good life. You're doing all the right things. It hasn't been easy, but, but you have remained faithful. You, you've honored God in the midst of it. And, and secretly, although you're, you're not going to be willing to admit this to anybody, you think that God owes you. Folks, I have been there on more times than I would care to acknowledge. And Kathy would be, she could affirm it time and time again. There are times when things get hard in my life and I think, God, what else do you want from me? What do you want? I've given everything I've got to you. And this is hard. And I've got to believe there are many of you sitting in this room right now that are feeling the same exact way. God, I've done all these things. And my kid has not turned out the way that I thought they would turn out. My life has not turned out the way that I thought my life would turn out. My job hasn't turned out the the way that that my job would turn out. My marriage isn't the way that I thought my marriage was. God, I do all of this, and where in the world are you? And we want to know where God is the justice. So what is the father to do? He could have disowned the older brother. He could have said, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you've been great, but look at how you're behaving right now. I want nothing to, to do with you, but he doesn't that. He begs the older brother to enter the party. The dads didn't beg in that day. They didn't run out to, to retrieve people, nor did they beg. That's not what a, what a dad did. But he begs, he says, come on, son, swallow your pride, join us. Your brother was lost, he's found, celebrate his return. Now, what does the older brother do? We have no idea. The story ends. The credits run, and you're left hanging. And don't you hate movies like that, right? I mean, it's just like, what in the world happened? But what Jesus does tell us in this is earth-shattering. In this short story, Jesus redefines everything we know about connecting with God. He, He redefines what sin is. He redefines what it means to be lost. And he redefines what it means to be saved. Jesus uses the older brother and the younger brother as a a way to portray the way that people find happiness and fulfillment. And there's basically two ways. Number one is moral conformity, and number two is self-discovery. And you know, you would have thought that Bella and I set this thing up today. But Bella talked all about the miserable nature of trying to make yourself right with God through moral conformity. You see, moral conformity is the older brother. Basically, we believe that happiness is found by being obedient to God's word and putting his standards uh, standards ahead of, uh, of anything else. 
That's moral conformity. Now, self-discovery, is it's the younger brother. And it's basically this. We say, I can't be bound by some kind of religious, moral teaching. I don't have to be bound by society's standards. I just need to do my own thing in order to find my own happiness. And, and these two views, folks, they completely divide the culture that you and I live in. You see, the moral conformist says this. The problem with the world is all of those people who are doing their own thing. That's the pr- if all of these people would stop doing their own thing, would, would start being like living like me, being moral, everything would be fine. And so what happens is, you know, the moral conformist comes along and says, you know what, the progressive people are the problem and the conservative people are the answer. That's what the moral conformist says. Then you got the self-discoverer. He says, the problem with the world is, is everybody's trying to ram their morality down my throat. And we've all have heard that too, right? And they say what? The, the, the conservative people are the problem, and the progressive people are the solution. And Jesus comes along, and you know what Jesus says? You're both wrong. That's what he says. You see, the, the younger son, he's a picture of sin that anybody would recognize. It's not hard to figure that one out. And the older son, he's a picture of sin too. It's just a little bit harder to recognize. You got two sons, one bad, one good, yet they're both alienated from the father. And both have been invited to the feast, which represents salvation. And this isn't the parable of the lost son. It's the parable of the lost sons. Now, why doesn't the elder brother go in? He says, because I never disobeyed you. You see, the elder brother, he's resisting dad's request. Why? Not because of his disobedience, but rather his obedience. The thing that's keeping the elder brother from the father is what? It's his pride and his moral record, which he can so easily recite. Because there's not much difference between these two brothers. What's the younger brother want the most in his life? He wants daddy's stuff. He doesn't want dad. He wants daddy's stuff. And he got that stuff how? by pulling a power play. And what's the older brother want the most in life? He wants the exact same thing the younger brother wants. He wants daddy's stuff. He's only trying to get it a different way. He's trying to get dad's stuff, why? Or how? By being good. You see, neither one of them wants the father. They just want what the Father can offer them. They're using the Father for their own selfish desires. One broke the rules to satisfy those desires. The other one follows the rules to do the same thing. 
And what Jesus is doing is he's basically, he's redefining the way that you and I look at sin. Most of us would say that sin is, is failure to, to follow God's standards. And Jesus would say, yes, it is, but it is so much more. Sin is ultimately trying to save yourself. And many people, both those who profess Christ and those who don't profess Christ, they live good lives. Why? So they can be accepted by God. Before I came to faith in Christ, if someone would have came to me and said, Mike, how do you know whether you're going to go to heaven or not? I would have said, I've been living a good life. And I would have determined good by comparing myself to the lowest common denominator. I didn't compare myself to Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, nobody like that. I compared myself to Frank Unone, who was my next door neighbor, who, who was involved in a murder when he was like 17 years old. My definition was, oh, at least I'm not like Frankie. And when we believe that, when we believe that we're moral, we basically see God as someone who owes us something. And when something goes wrong in our lives, when God doesn't deliver the way that we want him to deliver, like the older brother, we get angry at God because we feel that we were owed something and we didn't receive it. And from our perspective, justice hasn't been done, and we demand justice. And we say things like, no justice, no peace. And while that slogan may work on the streets of America, brothers and sisters, that slogan does not work with God. When we believe that God owes us something, we're focused on saving ourselves, not on God saving us. The reality is, sin isn't just breaking God's moral law. It's that, but it's so much more. It's putting ourselves in place of God as our own Savior. You see, the gospel comes along and says what? Everyone is wrong. Everyone is sinful. Nobody can save themselves, and everybody needs Jesus. And if God gave us justice, if God gave us what we deserved, every one of us would burn in hell right now. We don't need justice from God. We need mercy and grace from God. And rather than giving us justice, God gives us the gospel. Because not only does the gospel say that everyone is sinful, it also says that everyone is loved. And every one of us is called to recognize both of those things. And we do that by embracing Jesus in repentance and faith. Now the second thing he does is he doesn't only just redefine sin, he redefines what it ultimately means to be lost. The younger brother, his lostness is so incredibly evident. 
All he has to do is look at the devastation that he caused. Just look at the, the trail of destruction that is following in his footsteps. And for us, that, it's easy for us to determine whether we're the younger brother because that's all we have to do. We just got to look back at the carnage that we have created in our lives. All the body parts thrown all over the place, the broken relationships that are destroyed, all, all of the things that we've squandered. It's not really difficult to figure out whether we're the younger brother. But the older brother, it's a little bit more difficult to see, but he's still lost. And the first sign that we have to discover if we're the, the older brother, for that matter, the older sister, is when life doesn't go the way that we want it to go, we're not just sad. We're angry. And there's times in my life of which Kathy will attest that that's me. Things don't go the way that I want. And I'm not just sad. I'm angry with God. Because when our goodness doesn't pay off, that's what happens. We tend to get mad at God. And to make matters worse, all of our hard work and our obedience leads us to, to feel superior to other people. We begin to, to, to feel that, that I'm better than this other person. And moral superiority, superiority is, is at the root of racism and classism and sexism and tribalism and unforgiveness and a judgmental spirit. And I have seen this so much over the last three years. I have watched moral superiority play out like crazy all around me. I've seen so many relationships that have been destroyed, especially between Christians. Because we look at the other person and we look at their viewpoint and we think that my viewpoint is morally superior to theirs or my perspective is morally superior to theirs, or, 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 or my particular determination of what is right or wrong is morally superior. It's so superior that, that I'm not shy in expressing it. And we see this time and time again. Through the last three years, everybody's been on their high horse. What I believe is right, what you believe is wrong. And because you don't believe like I believe about this particular societal issue, we can no longer be friends. We can no longer work together. We can no longer serve together. We can no longer go to church together. The second sign that we're an older brother is this. We have a joyless, fear-based compliance. We obey God not out of love, which should be driving our obedience, but we obey God out of fear. And we become slaves to obedience, not lovers of obedience. And as a result, we end up doing the absolute minimum. We don't lie, but we really don't tell all the truth. And we don't steal, but you know what? We're, we're not going to be a generous person. 
And we're not mean, but we aren't kind. And this fear-driven obedience will never drive out the fundamental cause of the evil in our world, which is self-centeredness. We do good for others, but that good for them really isn't for them. It's really to make us feel good about ourselves. And we know what that's like. You see the person begging at, at sheets over here. And you're like running this through your head. Should I give? Should I give? Should I not give? Should I not give? And then you're like, okay, I'm going to give him some money or give her some money. And then I do it and I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that person driving behind me just thought. It's the way we live. At least some of us. Maybe you don't live like that. I know I do at times, to my shame. Now there is a third sign, and it's the elder brother is not confident in the love of the father. You and I will look at God and say, you know what, God, you never, ever threw a party for me. And when people criticize us, it devastates us because if they don't like us, Perhaps God doesn't like us. We end up with a dry prayer life and we pray out of obligation rather than out of love. In the end, we think that we're good with God, but if we're honest, the fact of the matter is we're just as lost as everybody else. So how do we escape this, whether we're the younger brother or the older brother? We begin by embracing the love that God initiates. You see, in both cases, the father goes to the son. In both cases. In the case of the younger brother, it's not his remorse that drew out the father's love. The kid had carefully rehearsed everything. He didn't even get to express it. His dad was all over him before he could say a single word. And it's the, the father's love for the son that drew him to the son. It wasn't the son's remorse. Similarly, it wasn't the older son's obedience that drew out the father's love. The father's love is there even in the midst of the older son's pride. And this is what makes Christianity so different from any other faith system. It's that God's love is available both to wild living, free-spirited younger brothers as much as it is to self-righteous, religious older brothers. And how do we know that God is running towards us? When he wants to pursue us, we will clearly know it. The very fact that you are sitting here at this moment means that the God of the universe is pursuing you. You may feel like you've come here at your own volition, but the fact of the matter is God draws people to himself. And if we're wise, we respond to his overtures towards us. And we talk many times about how we do this. We repent and we believe. We repent of the things that we've done wrong. 
and we repent of the things that we have done right that we've been trying to use to justify ourselves. And after repenting, we surrender our hearts and yield to the Father. It's when we see our desire to be our own Lord and Savior lying under our own sins that we're on the beginnings of understanding what the gospel is really about. When we get to this point, we'll understand that we need the one individual that Jesus doesn't talk about in the story. You see, there's another person that's not talked about. And it's the true older brother. Who should have gone looking for the younger brother? The older brother. That's what I would have expected of my son Mike if John would go off the rails. The older brother goes to find the younger brother. It doesn't happen in this case. But what we need is the true older brother. And Jesus talks about this. He, in Luke 15, there's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And here's the distinct difference between the first two and the third. In the first two, there are people that are seeking that which is lost. But in the third, no one goes to find them. A true elder brother would have gone there. And earlier I told you that when the younger brother was restored, it would have come at a cost to the older brother because the younger brother was now restored as a full member of the family and now entitled to another third of the remaining two-thirds of the father's worth. You see, I believe that was a price the older brother wasn't willing to pay. He didn't want to give mercy and forgiveness because mercy and forgiveness always comes at a cost. And what the younger brother needed was a true older brother, and you know what he got? He got the very people who were listening to the story. He got a Pharisee. So who's the elder brother who pays the cross? Or the price? It's Jesus. He is the one who strips off his robe so he can cover us. He is the one who's made an outcast so that we can be brought into the family. And he's the one who took the punishment that we deserve and gave us God's joy, which he deserved. He's the older brother that we need. Many of us here have figured that out. There are some who've yet to figure that out, and I am so grateful that God has brought you to this place. And I pray today you would leave this place and you would come to realize that we are not made right with God by the things that we do. And the things that we do wrong aren't really any different than the things that we do right when we're doing them all for the wrong motives. That it is all sin that we all desperately need Jesus and that Jesus pursues us at the cost of his very life. May he be glorified in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so gracious to us. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great work that your Son has done on the cross. Lord, would you forgive us, whether we be the the younger brother or sister or the elder brother and sister? Lord, would you forgive us for uh, trying to, to be made right with you through our own moral conformity? Father, would you drive us to our knees? Lord, might we repent of our sins and might we receive you freely as Lord and Savior? Lord, might we be kind and humble people? Might we love the gospel more than we love anything else in this world? God, may we become like the true elder brother. Lord, may we obey out of love for you, not out of some way trying to make you us earn our way to you. And Lord, now as we prepare to take this offering, Father, I pray for those who are giving in this place today, for those who have given uh, through the mail or online or uh, some other way, dear Jesus. And I pray that you would use these resources for the, the furtherance of your kingdom. You are good and gracious to us. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.